So, um, hello everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm very excited uh, for today's talk because it does overlap with uh, some of my own research. So that was a little bit selfish to invite uh, Peng Hao and uh, Tawang who are working on um, UN dynasty uh, edicts that um, sort of came uh, to Tibet through various mediums. And uh, what they are going to talk about today is how these edicts were perceived by Tibetans. So they went uh, super granular, uh, dug through tons and tons of uh, biographical notes and um, sort of patched together um, quite interesting um, sort of uh, recordings um, of these uh, methods. And um, yeah, just, a, just a brief word. So uh, Tawang uh, is uh, zooming in from Lhasa. He's a lecturer at uh, Tibet University and uh, is joined by uh, Peng Haosung, who is a, a graduate student at the Inner Asian and Altaic Studies uh, Department of the University of Harvard, who is um, amidst finishing his PhD on a similar issue. And um, without further ado, you two take over and uh, start your screen share. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for having us today. And uh, I need to get started very quickly. Um, before I got too nervous uh, by reading these familiar names and fa faces on the screen. So I will share my screen and I think you will see two edicts right all right uh we would like to start the talk with a, a story in the uh, autobiography of Daisu Jiangzi Genzhen uh, the famous political leader of central Tibet in the 14th century but before that I would like to briefly show what an edict looks like on the left is a document in Mongolian and in Papa script issued by Tokhan Timur in 1345 from Dadu. Uh, the one on your right is in Tibetan, issued by Dishi Gunga Loji Genzhen in 1321. In terms of uh, language, these are the two primary types of edicts in Tibet during the Yuan period. You can see they are beautifully written and relatively well preserved. However, we will not read these uh, real edicts. Instead, we will read some, some texts in which the, the government documents are used for rhetorical purposes. And the following story is exactly of this kind. In his famous memoir, Daisu Chanchu Genzhen recorded a conversation with a teacher named Nyameba. This was in 1318, and the text reads, the master Nyameba taught me many instructions, and parables with underlying meanings. I also asked for good parables and lessons about faults and mistakes. The master said, the parables should be memorized and it will benefit you and you will stop bad behaviors and be free of mistakes. These good parables are not those things that the edicts of Hubilai or the decrees of Papa could parcel out. 
See, this last sentence is kind of important. These good parables are not those things that the edicts could give you. This story is a rare case of people using the concept of edicts to discuss something else. That is using edicts for rhetorical purposes. In this case, these government documents are used to make a comparison and a caveat. The teacher highlights the usefulness of his own lesson by saying that those edicts cannot give you everything. This caveat indicates the importance of Hubilai's decrees, at least for this young man, this teenager who came from a noble family. Then what is a jasa, an edict or a gashou? These are two technical terms during the Yuan period. Jasa corresponds to Zhali, the edicts of the emperor, and Gaxiao corresponds to the edicts of a di shi, or impure preceptor. Normally, only the emperors can issue a zhi, or an edict, but the Yuan government had a special document system that differed from previous dynasties. In this system, below the impure edicts, uh, there were several other types of zhi, including fa zhi of di shi, yi zhi of queens or emperor soldiers, and ling zhi of princes. I, I just use an uh, English term, uh, edicts, for all these zhi. According to uh, the extent documents, an edict, an edict usually grants tax exemption, personnel, appointment, and verdict on disputes. Since the Yuan government did not have a systematic uh, codified law, so edicts served as an important administrative tool, so much so that the, the, the publication of collections such as the famous Yuan Dian Zhang could provide a, a handy legal reference and became a, a commercial success. In the case of Tibet, although there were no such collections of documents, we still know the contents of, of many edicts thanks to the works of Tuti, Shu, Junast, everything. We now have the contents of about 30 edicts. Then what can we learn from these documents? The first is simply specific historical information that they provide. And also, if we read these edicts together, probably we'll get an institutional history. Second, we can learn about ideologies and ways of thinking through the content and assumptions found in this document. For example, uh, Professor Edwards' paper on political theology and Professor Liu Haiwei's paper on uh, why Hubilai issued a ban on the Muslim way of slaughtering sheep. But the actual content usually tells, tells us more about the issuer then about the, the receivers. It doesn't say much about how Tibetans perceived or used these documents. In other words, they are not the best materials for us to study the Tibetan side of the story. We have to look elsewhere. The case of Jiangchukian Tan we just read is one example that can show us something different. 
it shows us both the popularity of the edicts and the misgivings people have had about them. Now we turn to another type of material that we can use to study the Tibetan reactions to these documents. These are very special literary works, and the best way to illustrate them is through concrete examples. We choose to present you a work by Bairawakens and Baisangbo, who wrote a meditation instruction, but in a very strict edict style. The picture on the right shows a manuscript version of the work found in TBRC by Megada Shogo. Actually, Professor van der Kuyp has already mentioned these type of works. I have included the reference here. About two years ago, he also organized a reading seminar on some of the works by Durboba and Bayerwa. And we have read this text together with other fellow students here at Harvard. Now let's read the text itself. It begins with a statement invoking the source of power. So by the power of the words of primordially pure Tamadatu. Then it clarifies whose utterance it is. I'll now read the Tibetan. The words of the non-cling of whatever rises, the uh, unconstructed, the great bliss, and non-official. So these are all, these are a bunch of synonyms for Chini, uh, the nature of reality, or Dhammata. Uh, what I want to point out is the format of this beginning. You may wonder why I put the, 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 Mon the Mongol in the in, in brackets here, Jarlik ER for Longi and Uge for Dam. Because this Tibetan work is actually imitating a Yuan edict, especially an edict issued by Di Shi, Imperial Preceptor. So it's imitating a Fa It has every element that an Imperial Preceptor's edict should have. So if we are uh, putting them in uh, blue color and give them a uh, terms that we use to study the medieval European documents following uh, Dieter Schuh's seminal study in, in the 80s, then we have the protocol or the introduction part of the document in vocasio and in titulatio. When we come to the publicatio part, it becomes even more obvious. If we look at the, the expressions in blue, we would think we're reading a real edict. We can easily find many of these uh, terms or expressions using uh, the convenient index provided by Everding's 2006 study. But what distinguishes it from a, a authentic uh, government document is the part added to the receivers by a genitive particles. You can see gi, gi, or agigui a lot uh, before these blue expressions. For example, number three, uh, 
Gyeonggyuki, Seriba. These golden badge holders, messengers of restless disturbances. In this way, Barawa associates mental phenomena with actual social groups, creating a lot of metaphors. I'm not going to uh, go through every item because otherwise we, we cannot finish it today. If you're interested in any specific terms, we may come back later. This comparison or metaphor continues in the petitial part. I only give one sentence to show how it works. I put the typical Edic language in blue and the mental activities in red. It reads, earlier, you clerks, for job, of mental disturbances, Namin, relying on the force of arrogant platitude, placed the text of disturbances on the back of the people of meditation, Samdangi Mide. And the people of meditation could not bear. This uh, term for could not bear Manu is also found in authentic Tibetan uh, edicts. Similarly here, uh, government officials are paired with mental distractions and peasants or the people are paired with meditation. In this way, it's no longer just a metaphor of individual things, but a metaphor of a relationship. On one side of this, this metaphor, it is the peasants' accusation against, against how to say, overtaxation. On the other side, it's, it's, the it's the peaceful mind, the peaceful status against distractions. Then we come to this position. This is the most essential part of the document because in this section, the actual legislative act takes place. It is now you clerks of mental distractions when collecting the four large taxes of the four daily activities. That is uh, walking, standing, sitting, lying down. Uh, shall not ask for more than the needed amount of water and food of offerings during meditation session break. You people of meditation, shall also not, the original text is very long here and I left out a, a big chunk of it. It continues to ask the, the, the peasants to work hard on the field and other duties. And also uh, as the, the metaphor works, uh, at the same time, it's talking about uh, the meditators should work hard on cultivating their minds. And here we also have some uh, very good examples of what we may call uh, the edict dictions or edict language. For example, here we have Tibetan Taina. This Taina doesn't mean if it is now or were it for now. It's not a conditional, but simply now, because this conditional comes directly from the Mongol. The Mongol book Su is a conditional. So 
more or less a, a something like a calc, a very word for word translation. I will not linger more on explaining the format since the rest also follows strictly the, the edict format, including a uh, here pro, uh, proclamatio, a sanctio, uh, and a detatio. This work features this, this weird term, horja. We frequently met it in, in 14th century Tibetan texts. It, it is also attested in both Tibetan edicts and Mongolian texts. This, for example, this uh, uh, 1320 yizhi by uh, Empress Dowager, I think, Daki. The, uh, we, we have the Mongol version in, in, in Pava script. There, the Mongol version is simply a transcription of the Tibetan sound of Hoja, suggesting that this, this is a group of people uh, kind of unique to, to Tibetan society. This term ha has caused some confusions to people, uh, to scholars such as Professor Luciano Tedek. Other scholars have uh, already briefly discussed and given their own translations of the term, such as uh, everything, Zaya, and Kripis. Uh, there is now uh, more or less a, a, an agreement that Horja are uh, were a group of people that uh, were low-level officials. Byron's text that we're reading today, uh, although not a real edict, actually serves uh, as a, an important source to understand this term. A major takeaway from Bharava's text is that Horja were responsible for collecting tax and deals, they deal, they deal directly with the, the peasants, the people. So they are the, I think the lowest uh, level of the government employees. This case shows us how we can say, using Niyameba's words we just read, this, parables of Bairawa are not those things that a real edicts could give you. Now some reflections on Bairawa's text. First, the, the format of edict is very rigorously imitated, followed. Second, with this format, it has a, a strong and authoritative tone. Third, this is not a real edict, nor is it a, a fake edict. It uses the format of an impure preceptor's edict to talk about meditation. Bayawa creates a systematic metaphor and many sub-metaphors. The structural metaphor is about the relationship between clerks and peasants. And the relationship between mental distractions and meditation. So sometimes the more I read it, the more I'm not sure what, what is the major point Barawa is making. Is it you clerks leave the peasants alone or you distractions leave the peace mind alone? I'm not sure it could work both ways, right? And probably that's that's exactly what Barwa was was intended to do. And this 
Barrow was not alone, and there are other works by other a variety of authors uh, using similar format. Uh, this table is 11 of them. We believe that in the future, more will be identified once we have an eye for it. Here comes the question. How, how did this type of work uh, come about? And Zhao Wang will introduce some earlier works of this kind. So Zhao Wang. Okay. Thank you, Peng Hao. The earliest example, oh, the slides, okay. The earliest example are found in Rengjong Doji's collected works, published in 16 volumes in Xining, available in DVRC. In them, volume five and volume 11 contain five works that applied, that applied the format of edict. Here, I will present one short work. In the blue area, the format of the edict has been applied and I will read the English translation by the power of the edicts of Shakyamuni. The words of Avalokiteshvara announced by Rengjong Doji at the degenerate age, which is a time when various demons are rampant. Flesh-eating demons are harming the lives of sentient beings and bring misfortune. Everyone should pray to the gurus, tutelary deities, and dakini. Be faithful. If you do that, the obstacle will certainly be eliminated. You should have known this. This as it seems ordinary, but when we focus on the format, we see the unique Lung Tam Doa formula. That is actually a feature of the Yuan edict. If you are familiar with the style of the Yuan Tibetan edict, including the format and the expressions, you will immediately tell that Rengjong Doji is using the style of the Yuan Tibetan edicts to start his speech. But the format of opening section here is slightly different from an authentic Yuan Tibetan edict. For instance, in a real edict, you will read the Lung Tam Dova formula is used by Rengjong Doji. But in a real edict, you will not find the agent of the verb of Dova, which is supposed to be the Di Shi imperial tutor. The two level hierarchy in a real edict becomes the three level hierarchy in Rengjong Doji's case. In terms of content, this speech focuses on the ideal that the essence of Mahamudra lies in finding the original mind. However, if we look at its context, we will find that Rengjong Doji is trying to prove a point that is not only about Buddhist doctrine. In what context did Rengjong Doji make this speech? First, we need to determine 
its date and space and the place of composition. The four works that incorporate the edict format comes from two collection of a very early short works. The two collections are very similar in nature. They both consist of miscellaneous utterance compiled in a chronological orders, respectively from 1282 to 1288 to 1300 and 1293 to 1310. Internal evidence shows that the year of composition was in 12, 1293. Actually, the all four works held the edict style are from 1293 to 1294. That is, when he was only nine or 10 years old. It is possible that he started to compose serious works at this young age. Bruce Campbell, he commented on this question, suggesting that these early works are not written in the same style as his later works. And it is more than likely that they represent other people's literary rendering of his oral pronouncement. Indeed, none of the four works involve complicated philosophical problems unless proved otherwise. We assume that the four works in question were written by Reng Chung Doji when he was about 10 years old. Okay. Furthermore, at this time, he had just left his father like a guru, and arrived at the Tsubu Monastery to make things worse because his reincarnation status was being disputed at the Tsubu Monastery. Uh, Ruth Campbell has investigated the circumstance of Rengjung Doji's life at Tsubu Monastery during the period. Using the biography and the spiritual songs in the fifth volume of his collected works, she argues that Rengjung Doji was not welcomed at Tsupu Monastery and that his reincarnation status was questioned by the local monks. The two collections in question can confirm Gamble's conclusion and provide further evidence. So, this speech on the teaching of Mahamudra was written at a time when he was trying to justify his reincarnation identity. Then the question is, how does the prove, how does he prove his reincarnation identity through the rhetorical device of using the style of edict? This style offers him a subtle way to establish connections. Firstly, he mentions Saraha twice in the text. And according to Ruth Campbell's research, Saraha here symbolizes the second Gamapa, Gamapakshi, 
while Rung Jung Doji regards himself as his disciple. Secondly, he used the term Rung Jung Doji several times in the text, such as Rung Jung Tam and Rung Jung Doji Doa. And Rung Jung Doji is not only the name of the third Gamaba, but also the secret tantric name of the second Gamaba. So the term Rengjung Doji here is a double entendre, which seems to imply that the two are the same person. In other words, that the third Gamaba is equivalent to the second Gamaba. Thirdly, he does not forget to mention his own identity when he's talking about the Buddha's teaching. For example, the work before it, Simba Rengjung Doji Tam, Simjian Rodun Chipala, Chupa Chokhi Samje Tu, Simjian Rodun Chupia Chokju Chablia Jang, Mata Nango Tini Tu, Miku Tepo Magina, Kovishani Kalatong. In here, he trying to emphasize that if there is a lack of reverence and faith, how will you see my true face? He also point out that as a practitioner, you have to explore the Dharma body, not the physical body. This was his response to those monks who doubted his identity. In some, this short text from 1293 and 1294 are part of Rengjung Dorji's endeavor to establish his identity. Also referenced in his biography to proving of divine powers, among other things. All these initiatives seems to have had the common purpose of suggesting or proving that he was the reincarnation of the second Gamapa, Gamapakshi. And, and then the edict format is just one of many subtle way for him to prove the point. Now there's a question. The next question is, where did he learn these edict languages? Oh, okay. My part is finished. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, we have the, we believe the, the answer to where did he learn this language is he learned it from Ugyenbari Jinbei. First, Ugyenbari Jinbei was reported to have received multiple invitation letters and, and edicts from the court. Uh, in this, um, as you can see on, on the screen, in this less well-known biography, we found a very interesting passage. It tells us an anecdote, uh, which relates that around, uh, the, the time is around 1290, after the, the big battle in Bamobetang between uh, Chaktai Mongols and the Yuan government. So Ugenba was accused uh, after the war uh, by a Daruhachi, a, a very high official sent by the court to oversee uh, the local issues. After a long argument, Ugenba said this to the Dalohachi. If you, referring to the Dalohachi, are appointed above the prince, 
please present me the imperial edict, Jasa. Or if you are appointed by the prince to be higher than me, bring me the Ling Ti. So this Ling Ji is obviously from Chinese Ling Zhi, uh, a princely edict. This is, this is very direct evidence for, for Wu Yanba's, uh, what's the word, familiarity with the, the government documents and their uh, legal meaning, their legal significance. As Zhao Wang just said, uh, Wu Yanba played an important role uh, in Rang Jundaraji's early education before he was sent to Turpu. So, we can't help but think Zhang Jundaraji heard a lot about edicts when he was staying with Ugenba. If, if this in, indeed can account for uh, Zhang Jundaraji's early exposure to, to the edict language, then something interesting can be uh, imagined. That is, Ugenba probably talked about edicts with his disciples or talked a lot about edicts or government documents among uh, within his, 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 uh, with his entourage. Of course, uh, these conversations, Tibetan authors probably won't include these conversations into uh, their guru's biographies. And that is why Daishu Qiangju Genzhen's autobiography is so valuable. To conclude our talk, first, we have been trying to locate some sources for the Tibetan side of the story. Since there are not many materials that may help us trace the history of uh, Tibetan reactions to edicts, the literary compositions using edictal style or style of edicts and the speech by Nyomeba and Uyemba who, who talk about uh, the edicts are so far the best sources to think about the reception of the Yuan official documents in Tibet. Second, this phenomenon is, uh, is not unique in a certain sense because we're reminded of the, the, the quid pro quo method uh, summarized by, by uh, Ernst Kantorowicz. I quote the, the quid pro quo method the taking over of theological notions for defining the state had been going on for many centuries, just as vice versa in the early centuries of the Christian era, the imperial political terminology and the imperial ceremonial had been adapted to the needs of the church. But at the same time, the, this phenomenon is also very unique because this how say these genius Tibetan authors use this, this format to talk about both religious issues and social issues. We can read it the other way. So it's not just using social terms on, on abstract religious uh, 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 on doctrines, but also I think Barrow is also talking about social issues. It's in a sense his own social thoughts. 
And this is the first, first time I read about social thoughts, thoughts in Tibetan literature. And some questions for the future. Uh, first, the chain of influence is still not very clear. We kind of uh, know a little, uh, people guess that uh, Dovaba might have been uh, a student of Garmaba and Barwa have studied with Dovaba, but how exactly they study with uh, each other is, we haven't found any studies on that. And we have a, a, a very hard time uh, to find a proper name for this kind of literature. Is it allegory? Is it parody? Maybe uh, people in the audience can, can give us some, some some ideas. And the, the third uh, thing we haven't done is the, the philosophical background of these works, and especially for Dovoba and Barawa. And this, this is something uh, that can help understand uh, both the philosophy and the, the, the social issues around these, these edicts. The better we'll understand the philosophical background, the better we'll understand um, uh, things like uh, Horja. Yeah, that's uh, that's our <laughs> talk. And we'll end here and back to you, Daniel.